Welcome to episode two of the Photographers of Color podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Turner, post-MFA fellow in photography here at the University of Arkansas and coordinator of the Center for Photographers of Color. This podcast was created with the goal of collecting oral history and to open up a dialogue on what it means to be a person of color working within photography and other lens-based media today. This podcast is made possible by the University of Arkansas School of Art Endowment. Our guest today is Bethany Malenkoff. She's a filmmaker and photographer based in Los Angeles, California. She curates both short documentary and still photography focused at the intersection of gender, identity, and culture. Through portraits and interviews, she finds meaning in telling stories that reframe familiar narratives. Some of her accolades include a 2019 Women Photograph Grant, a 2018 Glassbreaker Films Grant, and a 2016 Team Pulitzer Prize from the LA Times. She's also been recognized by PDN as a 20 emerging artist to watch and film and video from 2014. She's been a participant in the Eddie Adams Workshop, and her work has been recognized several times by the Picture of the Year International competition. In this episode, we talked to Bethany about her work at the LA Times, what it means to be a woman of color in the industry today, freelancing, and her latest project on women working in midwifery in Alabama. Enjoy the episode. So, uh, Bethany, how are you today? How's LA? I'm good. I'm good. It's kind of gray, but I feel like summer's coming, so that's good. Yeah, kind of gray here too, rainy. It's been uh, flooding in the area and all those kind of things. Really? Yeah. Oh, no. But I hope, you know, LA is always sunny. From what I, I, know. I know. It's June gloom. Okay. <laughs> so... Once June glimps over, we'll have the nice light back. Good. So yeah. I'm really happy to have you here for the episode two for this podcast. You're an amazing photographer. And first time we met each other, you were working at a company doing film and video, and you invited me out to Yellowstone. That was a really good time for me. Uh, I really enjoyed interacting with you and meeting you for the first time because I had always seen your work, but it was just like amazing to, you know, meet you in person. How many days did we spend together? It was like three or four days like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah that, was- that was cool. I was so happy that we could have gotten you on that project. It was like, yeah, it's so funny to think about, like think back to that time because it feels so random in my life, you know, like working for that company and doing that sort of work. But I was so happy to meet you and be able to spend that time with you and kind of get to know each other and our process. And, you know, it's always great to connect with other people working in this industry. So that was really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And now like looking back on that time, you know, I kind of see it as like a nod of like giving me an opportunity to, to like experience something different um, as a p- photographer of color and then be on this Photographers of Color podcast. So that, I mean, I just appreciate you for that. That's kind of how I view, view it in hindsight. And I really appreciate that. Absolutely. I feel like that's something that I've always, I come from a big family, so I'm the middle of five and I feel like a lot of my career and everything I do, I just want opportunities to meet other people and like build the family. Mm-hmm in this industry. So I do, I love that we cross paths like that. I love that that was the like meeting point because I had known of you and your work and I was like, he's really cool. And then have you never been to a national park before? It was like, oh, this is all going to be discovery and interesting and new. So I love those sort of situations. So that was really dope. That's often a time that I like reflect back on uh, pretty frequently. Speaking of crossing paths, we have a similar 
uh, regional connection. Um, I spent about the second half of my adolescence in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, you are from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Can you talk about growing up there and what that did for you? Yeah, so it's always interesting because my background is pretty complicated. I was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and in my first couple of years of life, we actually moved to Kenya. So my dad does rural public health. And so we were living in Kenya till I was like eight or nine. And then we moved back to Chattanooga and then we moved to South Africa. So I moved back to Chattanooga when I was 14 to start high school. So that's kind of when I came to America and like lived there permanently. So yeah, growing up in Chattanooga, it was, I think starting, I mean, moving from South Africa and then moving to the South, that was a huge culture shock. The first year was really difficult for me. Ninth grade was hard. Um, it was really confusing to figure out where I fit. And I don't think I ever really felt like I belonged. And I think that's also in part because my dad is white, my mom's African-American, and I'm mixed race. I identify as a black mixed race woman. So I think growing up was just a lot of questions and always trying to figure out where do I fit? Where do I belong? Who are my people? And so Tennessee, and obviously you don't know this when you're growing up, you don't know that the place that you live is not like every other place in America. So my experience, the American experience was very rooted in the South. And my family lives in Virginia and Pennsylvania. So much of my conception of America was Tennessee. Can you talk about a little bit of what were some of those lessons that you learned from growing up in Chattanooga and some of those things that you, you know, carry into what you do now? For sure. So Chattanooga is pretty racially segregated. And the neighborhood that I grew up in, my parents were always very deliberate about where we lived. And so our neighborhood was very diverse. And we went to private school. So I was always curious how our neighbors were zoned for the worst school in Chattanooga, while I was going to private school. And so there's always this tension that I held, I think, growing up. And wanting to know, like, why, because no one was explaining to me the structural issues that we have in this country. No one was really explicitly explaining to me, you know, politics. It was very brushed over, especially going to a private Christian school. I don't think that I was educated very well in the social dynamics of what was actually happening. So for me, I've always been a very curious person. And so I think I just had a lot of questions. And it wasn't until I was able to start working in documentary photography that I started to be able to actually go into spaces and ask those questions further. And so I feel like I, I experienced a lot of, I experienced a lot of things before I had the words to shape those experiences. And so I think I carry that with me now. Like I'm more curious about everything because I want to know, I want to figure out why is this working the way it's working? Like I'm being treated this way. Why am I being treated this way? What are the, what are the reasons why this is happening? Because I'm experiencing the after effects of something that I need to figure, I need to like unwind this. I need to ask the questions. So I think I would credit a lot of my upbringing contributing to that sort of process in my work. And speaking of asking the questions, how did you get into journalism and end up at Western Kentucky University for your undergraduate degree? Sure. So I actually 
went away to a small Christian college for two years and I was studying painting and drawing and I absolutely did not enjoy it. Um, I've always been a really visual person and so I wanted to create things. I like to create. And so I was studying art. I hated being alone. I hated being in the studio by myself. And so I had a professor that was like, hey, you love sociology, you love anthropology, you're a curious person. I think you should be a photographer. And so couple of random things happened and I transferred to Western, which in hindsight, I'm like, wow, that was really fortuitous because I had no idea really what I was getting myself into. So I transferred to Western and I took my first like intro to photojournalism class and I like absolutely loved it because I felt like I could finally start tapping in to things that I was always curious about, but didn't really have a reason to ask those questions or I kind of been thinking about things, but now I could actually explore it and I could go places that I would never have gone before. Um, so it kind of gave me this license to kind of fuel that curiosity. So you talk about Western Kentucky University, Ohio University, Mizzou, and then Syracuse, Newhouse, were some of the top photojournalism schools and then College Photographer of the Year. And, you know, you see all these different, you know, these are the top schools that are the options that you had to go study photojournalism at the time. And probably still today, I was getting ready to go to attend Ohio University after finishing my undergraduate degree to get a master's. When I was there, I started Googling African-Americans in Appalachia, in Appalachia because that's where Ohio University is located, and I wanted to still tell stories of African-American communities. Um, when I Googled that, your project, The Remainder, came up, uh, and it was photographs of African-Americans in Kentucky um, from these two towns, Jenkins, Neon, and Mac Robert, Kentucky. And these are remnants of once thriving um, African-American population um, of, of like past coal towns. Can you talk about that project a little bit and, and what was your motivation for doing that project? Yeah, so I'm not sure if this program still happens at Western, but there would be this spring like course that you could take that was like going into Appalachia. So I had taken this workshop and I remember I had this amazing professor, Josh Meltzer, and I really think that he saw kind of my vision and what I wanted to do because I was still in school. I was still trying to figure out a lot of stuff. And I feel like it's interesting because even back then we didn't have social media in the same way we have social media now. And so for me, it was pretty hard to kind of like figure out what my voice was because I was in this program that was predominantly white dudes and those are the people that were succeeding and so I kind of was just trying to figure out like where do I fit what stories do I want to tell what do I want to what am I about and so when I did this workshop with Josh Meltzer he really supported this idea of going and telling stories about black Appalachia because most of the stories that I saw coming out of this workshop were very like you know white stories um, about poverty about addiction stuff that just didn't really resonate with me and I just wasn't totally sure, like, where do I fit again? Where do I fit? What does this mean? And so I just started doing some research about these black coal towns. And it was interesting because I couldn't even drive really alone in Appalachia because of the racism and because our professors were a little bit concerned that if I was by myself, that this could be dangerous. There's a lot of Confederate flags. And so actually Christian Randolph, who's another photographer, he kind of like would go with me because he was helping. Um, he was one of the labbies for the workshop. And so he and I would kind of go out and I would just drive around and find a person, talk to them. And then they would tell me about somebody else because I really wanted to show the people that were left in these towns. And in hindsight, I can see how this speaks to the work that I care about and want to do because I think a lot of the time these narratives are erased or hidden 
And so I, and most people go and do like a photo essay, but for me, really focusing on documenting a portrait. Portraits are so powerful because they are a person existing in a space. And that's such a historical document that I've always been drawn to that idea of how do we preserve people within the space that they exist. Just even the act of that preservation is so important. And so I started working on the portraits and then I was like trying to figure out how I connect it to the land, to the location. And so that's where I sort of kind of came up with the idea of pairing it with a landscape um, and kind of letting the portrait dictate what sort of landscape I was photographing so that those two things could come together to be a visual record of the people that are left there. Because this, this used to be thriving. This used to, when you drive around, you know, a lot of the houses are just literally falling in disrepair because people will move away and it's it's less expensive for them to just let the house completely deteriorate than it is to demolish it or sell the land. So every third house would be completely rotting and falling apart. And so there was a lot of beauty to this history and the people that were still persevering there and a lot of complicated factors, right? And so... I tried to find someone from every demographic. It was kind of like, okay, that was my plan was like, okay, who is the oldest person here? And so I found the oldest coal miner who was also the pastor of the church who had three, there were three people at the church service when I went that Sunday, you know, and it was like all these things that were telling this really important story. And then there was a, the young guy, he works at a prison and he always, he was telling me how much he wanted to go on vacation in South America. And he was saving up his money. Cause he's like, I've never been out of my town. And like, I want to go to Louisville. I want to do all these things, but he needed to save his money. And the best way to do that was to live in this old house and drive to the prison and work there. So this, I think when I look back, this project really kind of set the course for the work that I'm passionate about and like what I care about. Mm -hmm. And I think like, again, it's asking the question of like, what narrative do we think we know and what is actually there? And like, I've, I've always felt like, you know, I ex have existed in spaces that people might not think that I should or recognize. And so preserving and showing that sort of like an anomaly, it's like this in-betweenness that I really am attracted to. Um, and this project was that for me. What do you think about the myth that Black people don't live in Appalachia? Yeah, it's always so fascinating to me because like, so my family my the black side of my family is from Goochland Virginia so they live on a farm like and they've owned acres of land my grandpa hunted so like that idea it's it's interesting to me that people don't think of black people living in rural parts of America when it's like that is such a it's I mean it's crazy to me that people don't recognize that because obviously we do you know like it's so obvious to me and so that I want to bring that narrative forward because the more we don't recognize it, the more we're erasing a really important part of our history and the dynamics of what's happening in our country. So I think a lot of the time, if you trickle down politics and you see how it lands, those are the people that are most impacted. So if we erase them or act like they don't exist, then it's easier to objectify them and have political issues land on them and further marginalize them. So for me, it's like, no, this is real. Black people live everywhere, especially rural areas. So how do we bring that narrative forward? And there's this whole thing of like called Appalachia that mm. encompasses, you know, right there in Kentucky, uh, that encompasses scholars and writers and yeah. uh, poets, artists, mm -hmm. you know, 
and there was a whole culture and history behind that. I had some similarities to my experience in Appalachia, driving around by myself, um, even as a man, just driving around by myself, experiencing, you know, different looks. Nothing ever happened to me. I always kind of had good, you know, sort of interactions with people, but I Mm kind of took the approach of like, okay, I'm going to go where I say I'm going to go and Mm -hmm. not kind of venture off anywhere else from that. Because there were even like, instances where like the Ku Klux Klan was like throwing these little they put the rocks in these little Ziploc bags and they toss them out of their car and you know people wake up with all these pamphlets in their driveways and so that happened in like a little town called Gallipolis, Ohio um, when I was living in that in southeast Ohio so uh, it was a pretty interesting area and that area has like a whole bunch of history behind um, mixed race people who identify as black and it's, it's just an interesting history all throughout Appalachia. And, um, yeah. It's something that needs to be dug up. And, and going back to your pro, your uh, project, The Remainder, to describe it to people, there are these, I like to describe them as these panoramic diptychs in a way. And you were describing it a little bit earlier. Portrait of a person on the left. And then on the right side, there's this landscape or mm-hmm. detail of the landscape. And they're very, that's a very intimate perspective. Uh, very close angles. Uh, you don't reveal much in the pictures, but just the around, right amount of information for the viewer to see what you want the viewer to see. Can you talk about your approach visually mm-hmm. to that project? Yeah, I think I'm very, shooting portraits for me is spending time with someone and seeing how their body moves in space so I can capture a gesture and things that feel authentic to how they exist in the world. And so I like, and I like to work this way a lot. Like I like to pair the environment with a portrait because I think, I think for me, that's kind of how my brain works as a photographer. Like I'm very both and, I don't like just one photo. I always had a hard time in school when they were like the, the decisive moment. I was always like, what? I don't know what that means. Like, what do you mean a decide one moment? Like there's all these different things that you can choose and add. So I'm, I've always wanted to like have more information. And so that was a way to do that, having the portrait and the landscape. And so I would shoot the portrait first and then I would go and find a landscape that I felt spoke to the emotion in the portrait. And so that's kind of how I, it's interesting now how that, that work is informing the work I've been doing in Alabama because I find myself gravitating to that same process because I just really want to make the connection between this person existing in this space, this person inhabiting the space, because I also think that on a deeper, bigger level, because most of the people I'm photographing are Black people, is me grappling with history and with our erasure in history books and textbooks and the things that I was never taught about the people that came before me. So I think there's this need to root people in the space to say they exist here. They existed here. We've been here. We've been here this whole time. And so it's kind of that theme that I kind of root myself in. And I don't think I knew that I was doing that then. So it's like, a process that I was working out, but I didn't have words for. And now I understand like, this is what I'm doing. I'm rooting people in space because we have ownership over this land, this country. Black people are part of this country and they have been, even if those histories are diluted or erased or shifted. So that's kind of my approach of portrait and landscape. Wow. You were dead on right there. You just dropped a lot of gems. (laughs) Couldn't have said it any better myself. 
Oh, thanks. It's a lot of, it's taken me a long time to kind of process through what I'm doing because I think I operate a lot of time with my intuition or the things I'm like processing through a lot of things. And so talking to people and hearing what they have to say and really trying to figure out what I intuitively am trying to figure out, I think that then brings, you know, working through that as an artist. So I think I'm a photographer. I'm a documentarian, I'm an artist, and as an artist, I'm trying to resolve these things or keep pushing in until I feel like, okay, I understand why I was doing that, I understand the formal qualities of the work I'm doing now. Yeah, it's 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 speaking to, the way you're speaking now is speaking to all the experiences that you've had uh, from childhood all the way up to your career as a professional. Um, mm-hmm. And speaking of experience in, in your trajectory, you go from Western Kentucky, and I'm assuming you may have had some internships in between, but then you land mm-hmm. at the LA Times. And so, you know, I had saw your work, The Remainder, and then I see one day, and this was like in 2013, I see this portrait of Jay Cole in the LA Times, and I look at, at the byline, and it's Bethany Mollenkopf. And I'm like, wow. And I was going through a few things myself around that time, about you speak about the decisive moment and then there within photojournalism sometimes there's this language of like a portrait has to be this way a decisive moment has to be this way the whole photograph has to tell a story etc etc and then this is where I see myself in you where you're teetering off from the photo J sort of Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. straight line this is the way we make pictures Mm -hmm. and you're floating over into the realm of artists or the Mm -hmm. realm of a portrait photographer Mm -hmm. while you're still in this journalism realm. Can you talk about that portrait with J. Cole? Yeah. So I think it was interesting getting to LA Times. So there was a year where I just worked in Chattanooga and I was in my hometown working on stories about inequity and education, all very community-based work. So it's interesting because I think that really rooted me in my practice of like, oh, I want to do work that is connected to the people that I live around and just the community that I'm a part of is important. So then I moved to LA, which is like, you know, so huge, so big, so different from the South. Like I had never been further than Colorado when I moved out to LA. So it was a big shift for me to start working at a daily newspaper, especially such a big newspaper with a lot of amazing photographers and editors. And so I think I was going through a lot those first couple of years of trying to figure out like, am I doing work for myself? Am I doing work for my editor? Um, and feeling pressure that, oh, so many people can see this image now. You know, it's not just I'm making work and putting it on my website. So there was a lot of like different factors kind of coming into how I was working. And I think I look back at a lot of those photos and I do not like them. I think they're bad. You know, I'm like, what was I doing? And I think it was because I was being pulled in so many different directions and people would always say, you need to make work for yourself. And I was like, what does that mean? Like I'm getting an assignment. So how am I supposed to be making work for myself? This doesn't really, I don't really get it. So it was just hard for me to reconcile how I could get an assignment from somebody. And then I need to go and make picture that I cared about too because I might not even care about the subject matter like that didn't that's really incongruous because my work is very closely related to like I I work off of intuition and feeling and obviously truth and what's in front of me because I'm doing documentary work but I need to feel some sort of emotional human connection and sometimes you're just not going to get that in daily news so 
I started building a lot of relationships with writers because I think that that for me was really important to understand what they were trying to do. And then I could understand, okay, if that's what you're trying to do, and then I can add what I'm trying to do into this. So I have more knowledge. So I don't just get an assignment and have to go out and make something. It's like, okay, I can talk to the writer, ask them questions. I can have a, like a broader knowledge about this which is tricky when you're working in daily news again, because you're having, you're not being, you're not allowed to like really meditate on a lot of things. It's kind of like spot news, red carpet, celebrity, you know, environmental catastrophe. It's just random. You know, you're just getting a lot of stuff thrown at you. So I do feel like I hit a like certain little strides there that kind of like things clicked. And I think that portrait was one of those moments. I worked with the writer Garrett Kennedy and I really appreciate his voice think he's an amazing writer and so he and I went and did this portrait and and Garrick is a writer that you know elevates the people he's working with and so he let me do this portrait with the prism because I was like I have this idea are you cool with it because we're not going to get a ton of time with J. Cole and so working with the writer the writer's cool with it my editors were like sure try it they they didn't really have any they didn't really care what I did and so I felt like I had space to experiment and play and that's how that image came about because I was trying to push in further because I was like I'm I'm not making any portraits I like that aren't resonating that this is what am I doing and so with that and J. Cole was super cool with it he was very chill he was like this is cool I like this idea and so it was very um playful and fun and I felt like okay I'm actually like making breaking through in these different ways for myself I'm making an image that feels good for me and everyone involved was happy with it and that's really cool because I feel like that was while I was working at the paper that felt pretty rare when it came to photography yeah at the time when I saw this image and I was in school and hearing all these things about how pictures look and and I saw this picture was like you know this is one of these pictures that you know the editor would like shoot down or you would expect the editor to like shoot down I'm like wow how did Bethany get away with that yeah you know I really love that you know, if for you all who haven't seen the photograph, it's this photograph of J. Cole, and there's all these reflections of him. He's center frame, and there's these kind of reflections, kind of kaleidoscope kind of feel to the image, but it's it's a very powerful image, um, pre-dreadlock J. Cole. So. Yeah, right? This is a throwback for sure. And it's so funny because back then, too, there wasn't a lot of social media. So now I feel like there, I feel like the world has opened up so much since I was even working because there there was no outside like there was nobody to say hey Bethany I really appreciate this work it was like I'm trying this thing hopefully my editors like it hopefully this lands just keep going so there was a lot of like mental work that I was doing just alone and I didn't really feel like I had a support system of people in photojournalism I had amazing people in my um doing video at the times with me but when it came to photography, I definitely felt like I was trying new and different things that I didn't really know where it was going to lead. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like, thankfully, because of social media, there's so many more resources for people, young people, people of color getting into this work that you can feel affirmed, that you can take bigger risks Then you don't have to work your way up the same old system. Like there's so many different ways that you can go about it. And I really love that. And speaking of trying different things, you have this project titled The Waiting Game mm-hmm. that you did at the LA Times, but it feels so much like a personal project. Yeah. I remember following you on Instagram and you kept sharing all these different, um, what I like to call dispatches um, of 
you know, outtakes of this project. Mm -hmm. And there were these two sisters, Chanel and Tata. In the video, they're talking about aspirations of life outside of mm -hmm. Watts, California. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about working on that project? Yeah, so this was a project that I sort of self-generated from an assignment. I had an assignment at the high school um, in Watts because it was about test scores improving. So it was kind of like, you know, your daily educational assignment. And so I met Chanel and she and I connected and I was just like, hey, I want to do this story because the projects in Watts have never, like they've never been updated. They were created as temporary housing and they've just existed. And so again, that idea of space where people occupy and how does that shape their futures and how does that shape like I wanted to know more and so I'd seen you know Watts is a pretty notorious name most people know that and so I was really curious about how I could go about telling a different story and so I would just spend a lot of time hanging out and that's a big part of my process anyways is I just like to be able to hang and see what happens like I like to have a luxury of time is great and so this project just took time. And because there was no deadline for it, it was a lot of it was me doing going and doing things in my own personal time. And one of my editors, I worked with her and she was able to kind of help make sure this would get space in the paper. Um, yeah, it's definitely something that most people are like, you made that at the LA Times. That's really curious. I also think then it was like, video was so different from the way it is now when it comes to social media. So I think people were less you could take more risks because it felt like a new, a whole new world um, in a lot of ways. Cause where were people posting it on, you know, the website now it's like you have, I mean, YouTube is what YouTube is. Facebook has every, you know, there's so many different types of video that I felt like this was definitely part of that time of just like doing doc work. That was really verite that felt a little bit more pure, less like, part of a series, part of this, part of that, you know, now I feel like there's a lot more demands on what video should look like. And that was part of a time where I felt like I could experiment and just try to make something that felt authentic and real to their experience. And the, the film is pretty short or the video is pretty short, mm -hmm. but it's very intimate and close. Mm -hmm. And the tonality in it reminds me of your color photographs. And we'll talk about that a little bit uh, later. But do you think this story could have been told from anybody else's perspective other than a fellow woman of color? Hmm, that's a good question. I would say no, um, because I think, I don't think everything is for everyone. Like, I don't think everyone has a right or deserves to tell whatever story they decide they want to tell. And I understand that for myself. Like, I don't think everything is for me. And so... I don't think black people should tell black stories or, you know, this, I think we can get into really dicey situations because I do find that sometimes people like to give me assignments for black stories or whatever that means, which is funny and interesting to me because I'm like, I grew up in Africa. Uh, I have a white father. I am from the South, you know, like there's all these other factors that contribute to my worldview so like hire me for the voice that I have and the vision that I can bring and that will dictate what the story looks like not what you imagine my race will contribute you know so I think that this story I built a relationship with Chanel and Tata and that's why the story was the story and so because I didn't grow up in the projects I didn't you know those aren't our life experiences were vastly different, but we were able to connect 
And that's, that's what you see, I think, more than anything. But at the same time, you know, what gave me access to the community where people weren't suspicious of me? It's all these factors. You know, I feel like sometimes these conversations can get really, like, circular and confusing. And I try to always just be really authentic to myself and my intention with people. And I think that's what kind of hopefully brings that intimacy to the work because I'm showing up as me. This is who I am. This is what I want to do. And so I hope that comes through. Yeah, you can definitely see through the work that you have a way of connecting with people. Mm -hmm. And that's what it takes in this line of work, especially when you're getting really close and telling different stories and making portraits of people. And spinning off of uh, people being assigned to different assignments within this freelance market, mm -hmm. you're a black photographer, you get a black story. You know, I often have been wondering the last few years, what would it look like if a black photographer was assigned to this uh, white predominantly opioid epidemic? There's so yeah. many talented photographers that could be sent to these different places. What does that perspective mm -hmm. look like? Um, I totally agree. Mm -hmm. I just think it's so, uh, and I was, I was giving a talk and recently, and I, we were talking about privilege and, you know, what I want people to think about is what is your particular narrative? What, what has built you to the person you are? What, who has come before you? What is your history? What do you know about yourself? And then what does, how does that inform your work? That is so important. How does your experience in the world inform your work? Because I want to see all different kinds of stories. Like I want to see black people photographing celebrities. I want to see them doing gap commercials. I want to see them photographing the opioid epidemic. I want mediocre photographers. I want incredible, super high end, you know, the biggest campaign ever black photographers. I want, you know, black wedding photographers. I also want different people of socioeconomic classes photographing things, you know, like I want to see white women photographing their sorority culture, you know, at the rural college they're at. Like, I think there's so many things that people don't consider that are so vital to creating a healthy and beautiful, more expansive conversation than, oh, you get to, you know, you're this, you get to photograph that. That's so, that's so reductive to me. And I want to see all of it from everyone. Like, I'm really curious about what a white male photographer might go and photograph a fraternity, like a white predominant fraternity. Like, there's so many things that I'm curious about. Like, interrogate the things that you need to interrogate. And I think once people start doing that more, we're going to see some really exciting imagery. Because that's, that's the work that I like the most, that I see that I'm like, wow, this is amazing. This is good. Mm -hmm. you know exactly no, I agree 100% and, and speaking about freelancing mm -hmm. within photography and film for yourself in particular I think within the last three maybe two years yeah I, I started since. freelancing full-time last year yeah and so some of your clients include Time ESPN I even saw you did something for Starbucks mm -hmm. you did something for Netflix mm -hmm. can you talk about that a little bit yeah Freelancing is interesting. I think I'm really happy to be freelancing because I think it's grounding me more in my purpose and in my intention because I have to be so thoughtful about the work that I align myself with. 
Because I think sometimes when you're working a staff job, you're kind of like, well, I'm just doing my job for this publication. But when you're actually your own boss and your name is your kind of currency, you have to kind of protect who you are and what your intentions are. So for me, it's like trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to pay the bills and how am I going to also make work that feels important? Because I feel like it's, I feel an urgency to the work now more than I've ever felt. And so always figuring that out. I also think it's important. I always want to say, you know, I have a husband that makes it a lot easier for me to freelance. Like freelancing isn't easy. It's not, you know, I didn't grow up with a ton of money. Like it's not like I was given a lot of things and my husband isn't even the one that supports me, but having a partner really helps. So freelancing can be all the things. And a lot of people don't like to talk about that. So I think a lot of people like to think, you know, you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, but I have a really brilliant support network of people that I think really keep me going in a lot of different ways, like creatively, spiritually, everything. And that is a really beautiful place to be in freelancing. It's like a really cool and I really like value it a lot because I think it's keeping, it's like pushing me in all these different ways that I never thought about before. Yeah, I think people being open about their struggles within freelance is you know i've seen that a lot lately on social media platforms like instagram people you know mentioning things in their stories about uh invoicing and Mm -hmm. uh people expressing their thoughts about you know droughts in work going months at a time without work and then also like you mentioned your husband and then uh vice versa people are mentioning their partners Mm -hmm. um uh their wives you know it's it's a lot of different scenarios that kind mm-hmm. of go within this whole conversation mm-hmm. and to try to transition into some of the work that you've done as a freelancer I think in the last few months you posted this image of Terry Crews mm-hmm. on your Instagram this is an amazing image so it's it one of these images that I saw on my timeline I was like, wow that's you know a really good image I haven't seen an image like that in a long time on my feed mm-hmm. and that that's the type of you know things you post to Instagram that's just the type of image maker you are you're very prolific and and you're very you have a lot of dynamic range in your tool bag Um, and I like to see that come out in the images that you make so this image of Terry Crews his skin tone is sort of a little bit uh, lighter than like a coffee brown his uh, sweater is sort of the same skin tone as he is and he's against this white wall, but you place him center frame within this shadow, but then this little tiny peak of light is shining on his face. Can you just walk us through that photograph that you made mm-hmm. and how you feel about it? Yeah, so, um, but I worked with an amazing writer named Carvel. And again, I love working with writers because I think I love to sit through the interviews because I think that helps me inform the image I'm making. And so this was actually interesting. As I was driving to the hotel we were supposed to be able to photograph Terry in, they called and said, oh, you don't have a room. We have no space for you. You need to pay like, you know, a crazy amount of money. And so they're like, good luck. You'll have to figure it out. So I'm kind of like, okay, this is in the middle of Hollywood. I don't like people. Terry Crews is very recognizable. So how am I going to do this portrait? So I'm not... I feel like working in daily news helped me kind of problem solve through this sort of panic of like, oh no, I have no room to do the portrait. So I got to the hotel and I had an assistant with me and we scouted around and I found that alley 
And I knew that the shadows were changing. So I was kind of like, okay, well, we'll just have to figure it out. Like I found the location that I like and I'll make a picture that I think is important. So I sat through the interview and I was a little bit panicked that Terry wouldn't want to go outside in an alley to be photographed. But I kind of explained to him like, hey, I'm so sorry. Like the hotel does not want us photographing you in here. Like this is a crazy thing that happened. We had a room, everything this changed last minute. Would you be willing to walk over here? And he was super cool, very chill. And what I, I wanted to photograph him in a way that made him feel gentle and soft because we were talking about masculinity. And so I really wanted to subvert that idea of this very like strong masculine appearing person. And so for me, it was, it's also was looking at his gestures, you know, hands on his hips, he kind of looked like a superhero, but I wanted, I wanted to kind of play with the light to, to just feel like more gentle, to feel like we're playing with light and dark. And this doesn't, I also really don't ever want to photograph celebrities, just like, you know, the typical lighting setup that I see all the time. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in like, how can the light kind of reveal something about this person? How can moving them around and letting the light fall on their skin and the shape of their body, how can that evoke some sort of emotion? And so he was great. He moved around a lot in the alley and we did a couple of different setups. And I landed on that one just because I really liked, I just liked the way that the light was falling on his face in contrast to the wall, but also kind of like this, yeah, I was going for a more like ethereal, ephemeral type picture of him because I hadn't seen that before too. Because I definitely like to research and figure out has how has this person been photographed before and how do I how do I see them? How do I interact with them? What is that? There's a gap in there that I want to kind of capture. That's kind of how that one came together. And continuing off of your approach to your, your photographs and light, Mm-hmm. Your utilization of light. Can you talk about the color and the vibrancy mm-hmm. and how your your portraits really pop? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of two images on your website that just, you know, personally spoke to me or really stood out to me or I enjoy really looking at. There's these cheerleaders. One, this is titled Howard High Cheer Squad. Mm-hmm. And there's like a majorette uh, of some sort. And, you know, there's one person in the foreground and then in the sort of toward the background there's a, a figure twirling her baton mm-hmm. and then the colors you know they weren't the light is kind of golden and then the uniforms are golden and then this other image tata and watts there's this kind of jagged fence mm-hmm. laying really low in the horizon line of the photograph it's kind of jagged and she's standing in the middle of the frame with this yellow dress on and it's kind of a cool golden light um but her skin tone is amazing the overall balance of the image is pretty amazing. And if anyone goes to your website or your Instagram feed, whether the work you're doing for clients or your personal work, your your feed is so vibrant. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's just the way you see. Can you talk about that? I think that a lot of the color, because people always say the color, the color. And I'm always like, okay, what's going on with my color? And I think it's because... I studied painting and drawing. So painting was mixing color. And so I learned how to like stretch my own canvas, make gesso, like learn how to mix paint. I had a professor or teacher tell me like, 
you never use paint straight from the tube. You need to mix paint. Like you need to create custom colors because that's how people know who you are as an artist. And so I studied a lot of color. That's just kind of what I like to read about um, when I was in school majoring in that. And so I think that I kind of have always kept in mind. There is an art in the color. There, there's so much power in it. There's so much emotive qualities to color. And so for me, that's how I approach things. That's what kind of stimulates me, what gets me, which I'm, it's visually appealing and I get excited when color is beautiful. And so, and appealing and like just really visceral and very tactile. Those are things I'm looking for. Like what, does that make you just like want to grab it and like bite it? You know, like what is the, like the vibrancy of it? So I'm always kind of trying to figure out how is that, how am I using color to either draw people in or um, engage them in a different way? Because I think it's a whole different emotional level to the photograph if you can use color well. So that's kind of how I deal with color in the work I do. Amazing. Yeah. And on this, the reason I started Photographers of Color is to open up this dialogue Mm -hmm. about our experiences correct the narrative mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as well as a lot of people that haven't been discovered from way back and there's a lot of people not getting recognition now um, but are still working and achieving and practicing at a very high level and so there's sort of a community out there on the west coast in LA and Portland and Seattle some people kind of spread out you got authority collective you're part of Diversify Photo as well. You got people like Tara Pixley, uh, Oriana Corinne, Sophia Allison, and even Daniela Zalkman from Women Photograph. She frequents LA a lot. Can you talk about your, your experiences in the community and being a woman of color in photography? Absolutely. Um, I am so happy that there are so many people that I feel like I've connected with that have made me so much better at my craft and just as a better person. I'm so thankful because I felt for such a long time that I was alone, that I didn't, I had amazing people that I worked with, but it's so different when you have someone that can say, yes, I, you're right. This is, you're right. I I feel you. Like I for real feel you. Not just because you're a woman, but because they have had similar experiences because of the way our skin tone has shaped our experience in the world growing up, you know, like Sophia Allison is one of my favorite humans and people that I've worked with because she was able to almost speak into experiences I had from my younger years wanting to be an artist, you know, so we were able, we were able to connect with that and she makes me a better photographer now, you know, Oriana, these people that are so important to my practice and I'm so thankful that we have spaces like Women Photograph, like Authority Collective, like Diversify, because I didn't have that when I was in school. I've been in this for like eight or nine years now, and it's changed incredibly, so much for the better that I think it makes me really excited for all the voices that we can bring to the table. And I'm just like so blown away by the work that I see other people doing that I want to support it. I want to champion it. I want to be a part of it. And so, yeah, I think it's a really interesting time to be a part of this image making world. And I think it's really exciting. And of course there's challenges, right? And that's not to say that there isn't 
it's just like everything is fixed and everything is fine. Because I do think that there are so many different systems in place that, you know, so many gatekeepers that hold people out of positions and work and jobs that they deserve that I'm excited to see how that can change in the future. And continuing on this topic, I think recently you spoke at the Image Deconstructed Workshop, right? So can you tell me a little bit about what you spoke about there and how it feels to be in those spaces and have that that platform to raise some of these questions? It's definitely been interesting for me because I feel like, I mean, it's really vulnerable to get up in front of people and talk. And I think it's really vulnerable for me to talk about my own experiences. You know, I think I was a bit naive in school and I was like, I just want the work to speak for itself. And I realized how horrible that is. And yes, the work can speak, but I also understand my privilege and power and I need to use that for other people. And so whenever I speak at anything, that is something that I want to emphasize, like we all have influence and we all can change whatever we want to change for. I think our lives work the way we want them to work. And so the life I'm about, the work I'm about is making the industry more equitable and elevating other people's voices and their work. Cause I think there's space for everyone. And so how do you make that tangible for other people? And so I shared a lot about my process of how I've gotten to the work that I'm doing now and kind of the pitfalls and the things that I could have learned sooner. And I think, yeah, it's, it's also interesting because I feel like I'm kind of, it's fascinating because the industry has just changed so much from when I was in school that to now be speaking at these events is like, it's kind of trippy. I'm like, oh, am I that old, you know, or something? I'm like, oh, I guess we are. So it's like taking that authority and just how are you going to use it? How are you going to use your influence? And speaking of influence and, you know, I too wish the industry was this close when I was in school as well. Yeah. Thinking about, you know, you, you mentioned equity influence, opportunity. How do you navigate this industry with your own level of agency? And how do you feel about the overall existence of agency amongst photographers of color, filmmakers of color currently? Mm -hmm. I think I... Even photo editors. Yeah, I think that we need more, we need more diversity in positions like gatekeepers we need people that actually have more power that can make decisions we need more diversity in that because you really don't see it and so like how do I navigate that I think it's like don't stop like for me a lot of my career is like don't stop like just keep making things just keep working because my intention and my my work is so much more important in this moment because it's hard, you know, it's not an easy career path. And so I want to have a long career. And so for me, kind of navigating the stuff is just just keep going. You know, my husband this morning was like, what would you tell your younger self? And I was like, you know, I wish I would just go tell myself, like, keep doing the work that you know, you need to do. And don't let all of these expectations or ideas of what your work should be get in the way just like make the work that you need to make and figure out the things that you need to figure out as a human and a person because that's going to get you further than anything else in your life and so I understand that the, like there's structural issues and there's a lot of I just feel like I've gotten to this place in my life where I'm just like I kind of know the work the kind of work that I'm about and what I my intentions are for that and so jobs come and go work comes and goes 
I just want to figure out how I can do the work I need to do and how I can enable other people in the same way. And so that's like a personal thing. And so if I think about industry-wide, I think we've made some great steps. Even I judged NPPA this year. Uh, it was awesome. And I like, I, I had this moment, Bettina Hansen is in Seattle and I had this moment with her at TID where I was like, you know what? It actually feels like things are changing for the better. And it was really cool because I haven't felt that in a long time in our industry because I think a lot of people kind of hold on to meritocracy, patriarchy, capitalism. And I think all those things then exclude people from the conversation and exclude people. And I felt like we're starting to make some dents in that. And that's really exciting. So like, don't stop. Let's all just keep going. Got to keep going. Such good advice. Such a good perspective. Really appreciate you sharing that. And speaking of continuing this conversation, Women in Photograph, you just got a grant from them mm -hmm. back in 2018, right? I got it. It's at the beginning of this year. So, okay. Yeah. So, you just got a Women in Photograph grant mm -hmm. for that round of grants. I've personally grown to appreciate residencies, mm -hmm. free money. I always <laughs> think you should apply, apply, yeah. apply. People kept saying that when I was a student and I just kept looking at my work and I was like, it's not good enough. Uh, the same people are always winning things mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I'm just like, I just, you know, I just apply to stuff all the time now because, you know, if you do that, you could really live with yourself and say, I tried. Yes. Uh, at least I put myself out there to attempt these things and I'll get better the next go around. Mm -hmm. And so speaking about your women photograph grant, you're doing a project in Alabama. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about what your project yeah. is? About? So I agree. Apply, apply, put yourself out there. Like all of this is risk. I think sometimes people don't recognize that they think, Oh, you have talent. You get somewhere. Like mm -hmm. most of it is just like hard work. Like yes, talent meets opportunity. And then you, that's a chance give yourself as many opportunities as possible so that your talent can come through. That's how I think about it. Like I'm just constantly working on ideas and pitches. And so I, yeah, I think sometimes too, my work comes from a place of me, like running towards things that scare me. The idea of having children scares me. And <laughs> the idea of like women and black women in this country, I think it's like six times or more likely to die during childbirth. That's really scary. So for me, I want to understand these dynamics. So I started working on this idea about uh, midwifery in Alabama because it was illegal until two years ago. So that was kind of the nexus for the idea of like, okay, if midwifery was illegal, what are the, like, I'm trying to find solutions. If black women are suffering and dying in childbirth, there's all these horrible statistics, like where are the solutions? So I was like, okay, Alabama they are going to have midwives. That's cool. Midwives usually help, you know, mother's mortality in the birth rate. So that was the beginning of the project. And right now I went and photographed, I was actually there last week. And I think the project has shifted in a lot of ways because I think I'm looking more just at birth workers because I realized like, although midwifery has been legalized, there so, there's, I think maybe one black midwife in the entire state. So that's a little bit shocking. So I started expanding the project out, looking at just women, black women working in birth work. And yeah, it's going well so far. Again, kind of connecting back to what we had talked about earlier, this idea that 
black people in rural communities are kind of experiencing the most marginalization and the class issues, you know, like the poorer you are, the more marginalized you are. And in Alabama, especially with all these abortion bans right now, it just feels like a lot of any, like a lot of colliding factors came into place. And so the work for me is very timely and important and urgent. And I think again, that idea of erasing history, you know, who was, who birthed all the babies in this country Black women birthed so many babies in this country. And so there that that history is erased, right? Because of the professionalization of medicine and the criminalization of granny midwives of black women practicing healthcare without licenses. And so in this work, I am rewriting that narrative of showing that black women are again co- coming up with solutions for their community. And so that's kind of where the project's at right now. I have done a good chunk of work on it and I still have a ton more work. I think it'll probably be a longer term project. I knew it was going to be a long-term project, but I'm excited to just kind of let it breathe and see where it goes. Cause I think with all of this, like, especially in the next, I think the abortion ban is supposed to go in. If, I mean, I think the Supreme court will knock it down, but it is slated to go into effect next year. And so that is a huge challenge for healthcare in the state. And so I am watching all of those things and figuring out how it factors into the story I'm telling. But yeah, it's like connecting back to that same idea of like, we're here, we've been here. This is our history. This is why this is important to understand. I think sometimes there are solutions too in the history that we don't have. So how do we, how do we sort of uncover these things is a lot of the practice that I'm working in. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing yeah. um, about that project. And I don't think I've ever heard anything about midwifery uh, mm-hmm. in Alabama. So first off, that's very unique approach. Not a lot has been done on that, mm-hmm. yet alone visually. And you're dealing with an overall idea of women's rights, women's health, mm-hmm. health care. And so all those different things wrapped up in one, and then you apply to this grant. Mm-hmm. And you got it. So that's a lesson to young photographers. Your ideas are important. Put them out there. Let somebody look at it and get some money to do them. Absolutely. I think that's hugely important. And it's also like, I think when we have a lot of different voices saying, this is the thing that I know that I am experiencing that I understand. Let me figure out who else is experiencing that. You know, then we're going to get different voices because there's a reason why we don't see things. I read this great quote today. What was it? Let me find it. Um, It was like, people aren't voiceless. They're either silenced or obscured. That to me is the work. People aren't voiceless. You aren't voiceless. I'm not voiceless. So what are the narratives that we can help bring forth because of our particular unique experiences in the world? I think the more that people can have access to bringing forth those narratives, the more equitable the world can be. It's just going to be a better place for all of us if we have more of a chorus versus just like everyone dictating what they think and experiences. And building off of that a little bit more, and this is the last question I'll ask you. Sure. I want to know a little bit more more about your worldview. Who is mm-hmm. Bethany Malenkoff? And how does that tie into your personal project, Everything Belongs? Mm-hmm. within this project most of the photographs are black and white or they're all black and white but then there's all these little intimate moments it seems from around 
the whole world as all different types of ethnicities of people, different locations, different types of moments, obscure or abstract type of images. is a good mix of a dynamic range of just all the right things you want to see within a visual project. Uh, can you talk about that project a little bit more in mm -hmm. your world? So that project, everything belongs. When I was working at the Times and I felt like, what am I doing? What am I saying? I kind of just started a folder where I was just saving images that I created that I liked. felt like I was doing something, like I was saying something. I'm saying something, right? And so everything belongs this idea that everything that I'm experiencing, I think so much of the time I was taught like photojournalism is unbiased. It's objective. You go and tell the truth and you leave. For me, that's never been the case. That's not realistic. I carry all these stories with me. All these things that I witness and experience are part of my experience because I exist as a human in the world. So I go, I witness this thing, could be traumatic, could be beautiful. And it's part of my narrative now too. And so after I left the Times, I was really trying to figure out like, what am I trying to say? What kind of work am I trying to do? Who am I? I worked for four years at a newspaper, but what what was I doing? Like it was kind of me interrogating, like, what 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 are you saying, Bethany? Who are you? What are you doing? And so I think this project is kind of a visual walk through all the different things that I was going through at the time. And I still add to this folder because I think it's an ongoing, it's the ongoing project of my existence as a person in the world, how I experience things and how I'm um, navigating different situations, different people, some assignment work, also just my daily life. And so I think sometimes the best way to look forward is to look back. And so that's what this practice is. Everything belongs. It's not just one thing. It's kind of the multiplicity of my existence is kind of navigated in those images. And I think that kind of speaks to like who I am. My worldview is very layered. It's very complicated. It's nuanced. Um, I'm not just one thing. I'm not just... I really value open-mindedness and I really value flexibility and shape-shifting and not feeling like I need to be one thing. Anytime I, it's interesting, even as like a freelancer, last year I just did like mostly purely video film work and I felt like uh, that, okay, that I do that, but I'm also a photographer. So now I feel like I sw I'm swinging back to like, I've only been shooting photos for the last two months. And so I, I think that's kind of how I approach everything is with a fluidity and with an open-mindedness to be able to change. Like I want to be able to change course quickly and kind of go with, I'm, I, I feel like I'm called, like there's soul work that I need to do. Like my art is a lot of that. And so I need to be able to be open to where that's going to go. I don't ever be locked into just like one thing like Bethany does portraits of this or Bethany is a filmmaker like this. I want to be able to play within those spaces because I have the privilege, the freedom to do that because I think of all the people that have come before me that weren't able to do that. And so I want to live in that freedom because I think that's a beautiful expression of all the multitudes that has taken to be at this point. Thank you so much for... Yeah sharing your thoughts with us today. I look forward to the work that you're going to do in Alabama and when that gets to the point where you share it with us. And I also want to wish you luck in your freelance career and looking forward to more assignment work uh, coming out in the coming months and years. And so thank you. Yeah, 
absolutely. Thank you. I love the work you're doing. It's so important. Thank you, Bethany. Yeah, of course. That was my interview with Bethany Mollenkoff. To find out more about the Center for Photographers of Color, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Photogs of Color. Our website, photographersofcolor.org, will be coming soon. Again, thank you for listening. Until next time.